Before I continue on with the five aggregates tonight, the five aggregates of clinging, I wanted to just share briefly a little story that just happened. And it was just one of those lessons in seeing when one is mindful and what happens when one is not mindful. As I often do before uh, a talk, I sit. And um, when I sat down, I remembered the last few weeks of sharing something of those sittings with you and thinking, oh, nothing to share tonight. And I was sitting, and uh, on the last weekend, I had the opportunity to do a retreat myself, which I think kind of inspired me in my practice. And so there I was, sitting, and really just sitting. There was no past, no future, just present moment, awareness of things arising and passing away. Um, Very calm, very peaceful. And then suddenly the thought came, oh, you have to give a Dharma talk. What time is it? And when I looked at my watch, much more time had passed than I realized. And there was this total state of panic. Of course there was enough time to get here, but it was just moments of seeing where the mindfulness had been very strong, being with experience, and then one thought coming through, which wasn't held with mindfulness, but identified with. And there's just this whole ricochet of experience. And, you know, I actually was so panicked, I jumped up and my heart was just pounding, as if I had to race over here, which I didn't. But anyhow, this is difference between being mindful, being present with experience, and being identified and caught up and reacting to our experience. So last week I was introducing or setting the stage for us to investigate the five aggregates of clinging, um, setting the stage by uh, introducing Anatta, the impersonal, insubstantial nature of experience that we can come to recognize through being directly and immediately with our experience. And I was pointing to how the scene of impermanence helps us to break down this solid sense of who we think we are and also how seeing how uncontrollable these experiences are, that they're ungovernable, that we can't hold on to an idea of, uh, well, we can't be a solid, separate, unchanging self. That what we're bearing witness to is changing experiences of mind and body. So tonight we'll be continuing on with this, and there's a little bit more of the stage I want to set, but we will actually get into uh, the beginning of the five aggregates tonight. But in doing so, I want to remind us of something that the Buddha often said. I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And so his teachings were always pointing towards that which leads to the end of suffering. And so that's what this investigation of this sense of who we think we are, this I that we hold so tightly to, 
we're investigating this because it can lead to the end of suffering. In the first noble truth, when the Buddha talked about the truth of suffering, he described suffering in this way. Birth is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Not to obtain what, what, what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. This last piece, in short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. This is of interest to me, whether it's because of living in modern times, wanting the shortest route, the quickest route, uh, the most accessible route. And, you know, here's the Buddha saying, in short, these five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. So what we're talking about here tonight is really the shorthand version of what suffering is. And when the Buddha described the five aggregates, he said, and what friends are the five aggregates affected by clinging that in short are suffering? They are material form aggregate affected by clinging, the feeling aggregate affected by clinging, the perception aggregate affected by clinging, the formations aggregate affected by clinging, and the consciousness aggregate affected by clinging. That, in short, is suffering. In another sutta, the Buddha used the word burden to relate to the five aggregates. In the Bara Sutta, uh, he talks of the five aggregates as being the burden, and the carrier of the burden is the person. The taking up of the burden is craving, and the laying down of the burden is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving, the giving up and relinquishing, or freedom from it. He also said, A burden indeed are the five aggregates, and the carrier of the burden is the person. Taking up the burden in the world is stressful. Casting off the burden is bliss. Having cast off the heavy burden and not taking on another, pulling up craving along with its root, one is free from hunger, totally unburdened, unbound. I find the word burden very easy to relate to. There are times in life when the burden can feel lighter, but just the weight of being alive at times feels like such a burden. On the physical level, just to have a body can be a burden. Looking at a small baby a baby crying in this body, um, a baby crying because it can't communicate when it has smelly diapers and doesn't like to sit in that stench with those sensations, a baby when its tummy is hurting because of the food it's eating. As we grow older, 
this body again can be such a burden. You know, if we remember back to maybe when we first had hormones starting to pulsate through our bodies, it wasn't always so pleasant. As we grow up, um, and there comes a point in our lives when we have to provide for this body, this can become a burden. It's meaning we have to have a job, home, food, heat, and usually a car, just because of the way the world is today. Actually, just the other day, I was out in the world uh, during rush hour, and it just suddenly struck me. I mean, and it struck me, I think, because I tend to live in quite a secluded environment, just as you are while you're here, and then going out into the world, and here it was, you know, five o'clock in the evening, and everyone's driving, too. You know, there's this whole anxiety that can come in with the driving. Everyone's got to get home from their job, and these jobs are there simply because we need to take care of ourselves. And, you know, often in life, we end up with jobs that we don't really like, we don't want to do, and yet we're forced to take care of this body. And then if we have a family to take care of, the burden becomes even more. And, you know, this can be just this burden of taking care of this physical vehicle. And then when we start to look at the burden in relation to the mind, and the mind clinging to mental states, or attachment to views, ideas, attachment to sense desire, or wanting to create the perfect world, you know, then this really becomes a burden. And then the burden gets even bigger when we look into our interrelatedness, relating to the world around us. And at times it's just an immense weight that that can become oppressive. So when we're exploring these five aggregates of clinging, we are exploring a way of looking into how we get caught in this clinging that causes us so much pain, that causes us to feel this sense of carrying this heavy burden. Actually, in just speaking about burden, You know, it was a few weeks ago where I was really reflecting on this aspect of uh, there being this burden. And so in my practice, when I would start to feel a heaviness, a weight, uh, starting to get really caught or identified in some way, I would just use the phrase, put down the burden, for whatever way I might be identified in that moment. And it really helped me to drop that identification, to drop that weight, and to simply sit in the simplicity of the experience. Buddha, in talking about uh, the aggregates affected by clinging, 
broke down our experience into the mental and physical components. In Pali, this is called nama and rupa. Nama being comprised of the feeling tone of experience, perception, volitional or uh, volitional formations or intentions, and consciousness. And rupa being made up of the material or physical dimension of experience. This is relatable in the way of the four elements, four primary elements of experience of earth, air, wind, and fire. These being the material components of matter. And these proce- this processes of mind and body coming together and not remaining the same for two seconds in a, r- a row, being in continual flux. And these five categories of experience do not singularly or collectively constitute a self, dependent ego, entity, or personality that stands apart as a solid self. That these aggregates have a vapor-like nature that is transient or impermanent. They are compared to a lump of froth, a bubble, a mirage, a coreless plantain stem, and a conjuring trick. So this lump of froth is what we so often call self as making up ourself as a person. And our investigation into these aggregates takes us into a way of being with experience that sees into the illusory nature of what otherwise seems so solid and unchanging. Before going further into these five five aggregates, I want to just speak a little bit about how when the Buddha was speaking about them, he was saying the five aggregates affected by clinging. And so to look at clinging for a moment. Because it's not the aggregates that are the problem, but it's the clinging to these aggregates where we identify with these aspects of experience as belonging to I, me, or mine. The Buddha spoke about three types of clinging. Clinging to sense pleasure, desire for sense pleasure, where we want to have pleasant experiences, where we want to have um, great taste, beautiful sounds, pleasant sexual experiences, where we want the sensory stimulus to be pleasing to the mind, seeing craving to sense pleasure can often be easier to see because it is somewhat coarse and apparent. You know, we often become aware of this compelling nature of desire for sense pleasure. You know, if we're uh, someone who experiences a lot of food craving, it may be something that we see a lot in our experience. 
Or maybe we're addicted to shopping, that we want to have nice things in our lives. Even though we may be aware of it, it can still be very hard to work with, very difficult. And in the Buddhist teachings, we learn to come to understand desire. Because often the practice that people can have in life is that you know, they see that one form of desire. You know, I, I know someone who was really addicted to smoking, and they were able to give up smoking, but then they were drinking a lot. And then they could give up drinking, but then they were gambling a lot. And it was all the time just changing the form of desire, but not really looking into desire itself to see that that was the cause of suffering. So through what the Buddha taught, we learn to look into this desire to see how unsatisfactory it really is how it's holding up a promise that is really not true. That by the satisfying of these desires, we're not going to be completely happy. And so if we keep trying to satisfy ourselves through desire, we're just caught in this endless cycle of desire. And we can really only come to understand this when we look into desire in our own minds. The second type of desire being the desire to become. This can be seen in the ambition that comes with wanting attainments, wanting recognition, wanting fame, the craving to be somebody. In our practice, we easily fall into becoming, becoming a better meditator, becoming an enlightened being. Coming onto retreat, we often come with an agenda of what we want to become, what we want to work through. The third type of desire is the desire to get rid of the desire to get rid of unpleasant experiences in life, unpleasant sensations, anger, fear, jealousy. We want to get rid of them. We want to annihilate them. At times in our lives, we'll we'll experience the desire to get rid of other people, um, things that bother us. Uh, I mean, and sometimes we can become quite self-righteous in this wanting to annihilate. Um, it, when, if we look at the death penalty, can be this form of that there's you know, somebody who's created a terrible crime and we don't really know what to do with that person, how to help that person. So the sense is to annihilate, to get rid of. And then in our lives, you know, we can see it on a simple level of a bug bites us, and it's really uncomfortable, and our immediate reaction can be to annihilate, to get rid of. Sometimes we see this in our practice, where it could be our relationship to the thinking, thoughts, that the thoughts arise and we're so sick of them. We just want to get rid of them, annihilate them. 
desire being a place of ignorance, a place where we get enchanted, where we don't see clearly, we don't see the, um, the effect of these desires. Another way to understand this desire uh, clinging is through identification. It's where we get sucked into believing, becoming, not wanting any aspect of experience. I was reflecting on this just this quality of identification recently. And I was thinking about it, you know, just about in terms of degrees of identification. And, you know, I was thinking about three people watching a sports event. And there's one person who doesn't know much about this event. And, you know, take a football game. Somebody's sitting there watching a football game. And so as they watch this game, you know, see this ball tossed about here and there, um, you know, wa- can watch this game and appreciate, you know, somebody running down the field and out of this whole big flame, pa- playing field, you know, someone else throws the ball to them, flies through the air, and they're gracefully running down the field and they catch it. And so this person doesn't know anything about this game and can just appreciate the beauty, the execution of that play, um, you know, and maybe then somebody gets hurt. And there's a compassionate response in the heart. You know, they care for that person. But they're really able to watch that, the, the plays happening without a lot of suffering. And then there's another person who's watching this game, and they happen to be from the uh, home team. You know, they're identified with one of these teams, comes from the city they live in. And so when they're watching this game, when the, the team that they're cheering for um, does a good play, they're really happy, exhilarated. When the other team has a good play, they feel a bit deflated. Uh, or when the other team scores a goal, then there's some anxiety that arises. And then there's a third person watching this game who's actually bet on this game. You know, they stand to lose money. Um, So more of a threat to their well-being rests on the outcome of this game. And so as they watch the game, you know, the, the team that they've put their money behind scores, and they're so happy, they're so excited. But then the other team scores, and they're angry, they're outraged, um, really identified, and they really start to suffer with the way this game is being played. And it, it really happens that the stronger the identification is, the more we will suffer. And Sayadaw uh, Yotika, a Burmese master, says, less desire, less burden. You know, this identification is being the way that we carry that burden. And so when we're really pulled in, we're really, um, you know, it's as if our well-being depends on this. We will suffer. 
But when we see this experience that we're having as not belonging to us, as just appearances in the mind, there will be no suffering. We find in our practice that at first we might become aware of the clinging on very gross levels. You know, the really the, the strong wanting of food or um, just wanting, sitting here, uh, craving pleasant experience. Um, and then, you know, as we practice at times, there will be more subtle levels of this attachment. But this clinging happens when we relate to any of the five aggregates as belonging to ourselves, when we personalize these aggregates and they take them to be I, me, or mine. And as a result, we suffer. So now beginning to look at these aggregates, beginning with rupa, or material form. This body is made up of material form. And this body is a place that we so strongly identify with. We may hate our bodies. They're too tall, too short, too thin, too fat. We may have any number of judgments about this body, our physical appearance. Sometimes we become obsessively caught up in trying to defy the natural processes of the body, the aging process, wanting to remain forever youthful, not letting the body, or not wanting the body to change. I'd like to share a story about a body, a body that actually gets related to with wisdom. This is a story that uh, was told by a Tibetan Dzogchen master, Tulku Urjan Rinpoche. And he said it in telling a story about another teacher, Sabtu Rinpoche. And just before I tell this story, to warn you that it's a little bit grim in pointing to some aspects of this body. But this is a part of learning to look at the body in its true nature, to see it for what it is, and to not glorify, uh, to have this habit of glorifying this body, but to be able to really see it. So this being about Sabtu Rinpoche. Before he died, a horrible disease struck him. His stomach became one big open sore. Finally, all his intestines were laying out in his lap. The pus, liquids, and blood ran out onto the floor, all the way out to the door. There were definitely body bodily sensations, and he wanted to scratch at it all the time, 
so he asked to have his hands tied. They were tied with a white scarf to stop him from scratching. His disciples said, O Rinpoche, this must be so difficult. It must be really painful for you. He said, I'm not sick at all. There's nothing wrong with me. They said, How terrible! All the pus and the blood is flowing down onto the floor. And he answered, There is an old monk sitting on this bed. He seems to be moving around quite uncomfortably. He wanted to scratch his belly, but for me, there is nothing wrong at all. I am not sick at all. However, there is someone who looks like me sitting right there. He seems to be suffering quite a bit, but I am fine. Toku Urgen Rinpoche went on to comment, If you are stable in practice, it is like that. There may be suffering, but there is no one who is identified with it. How much do we identify with our bodies? I mean, if we sit and we look at our hand, is it my hand? When we look in the mirror, is the reflection of my body? If we have a pain in the back, is it my back? When we ask ourselves these questions, sometimes it reveals to us that there is a very strong identification with this body. And sometimes it seems almost impossible that this identification could be broken, that it could be otherwise. And in speaking about this, I'd like to say that there is this compounded configuration of material matter that we relate to as being self. And this is not wrong in the conventional sense of the world, from the relative level. But from the level of the absolute, None of the material substance is self. The Buddha said, although people view the aggregates of material qualities as a living being, in reality, they are not self. They are merely physical phenomena. The Buddha recognized that there was strong identification with this body as self. So he offered contemplations that helped to break this identification. One such contemplation is to look at, at the body not as it appears as a solid unit, but to look at it as parts of the body, like opening it with a scalpel, the skin of this body, and exposing that which is hidden. It's a very structured-like way of going through the parts of the body. And it dissolves uh, what we 
vaguely hold as a notion of oneness of the body, and it removes the delusion of beauty of this body. It helps to work with attachment to this body. Right now, just as a small exercise in working in this way, I'm simply going to list the 32 parts of the body that the Buddha spoke of. And as I list these parts of the body, one can either visualize these parts of the body or have a sense of these parts of the body. Hair of the head. Hair of the body. Nails. Teeth. Skin. Is this who we are? Flesh. Sinews. Bones. Bone marrow. Is this I, me, or mine? Kidney. Heart. Liver. Diaphragm. Does this belong to oneself? Spleen, lungs, bowels, intestines. Is this beautiful? Contents of the stomach, feces, brain, bile, Phlegm, pus. Can we control these parts of the body? Blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease. Is this who we are? Saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, urine. Which parts of the body could you say, ah, yes, this is me, this is who I am. I'd like to share a poem by a great um, master from the 7th century, Shantideva. It's called, What Body? What we call the body is not feet or shins. The body likewise is not thighs or loins. It is not the belly, nor indeed the back. And from the chest and arms, the body is not formed. The body is not ribs or hands, armpits, 
shoulders, bowels, or entrails. It is not the head or throat, for none of these is body constituted. If body, step by step, pervades and spreads itself throughout its members, in its parts indeed are present in the parts. But where does the body in itself abide? If body, single and entire, is present in the hand and other members, however many parts there are, the hand and all the rest, you'll find an equal quantity of bodies. If body is not outside or within its parts, how is it then residing in its members? And since it has no basis other than its parts, how can it said to be at all? Thus, there is no body in the limbs. From illusion does the idea spring to be affixed to a specific shape, just as when a scarecrow is mistaken for a man. As long as the conditions are assembled, a body will appear and seem to be a man. As long as all the parts are likewise present, it's there that we will see a body. Likewise, since it is a group of fingers, the hand itself is not a single entity, and so it is with fingers made of joints, and joints themselves consist of many parts. These parts themselves will break down into atoms, and atoms will divide according to direction. These fragments, too, will also fail will fall to nothing. Thus atoms are like empty space. They have no real existence. All form, therefore, is like a dream. And who will be attached to it? Who thus investigates? The body, in this way, has no existence. What is male, therefore, and what is female? This body we attach, identify with. Another practice that the Buddha gave to break down this attachment to the body, identification with the body, was to send people out to sit in charnel grounds, something that we don't have the opportunity to do so much in the world today, although out in nature we can watch um, beings, bodies decaying. He would send people out to watch the various stages of decay that the body goes through to witness this, to see, and in seeing this, it would lead to a disenchantment with the body as self. He said to reflect on how this body of mine is too of the same nature as that body which is decaying. It will become like that and will not escape it. Something we so commonly forget, that this body will change, will decay, just in the same way that every other body has. When 
the Buddha was speaking about the five aggregates um, and speaking about rupa, there was one way that he continually expressed as a way to relate to this body. And that is in the way of the four primary elements, earth, air, water, and fire. To, uh, you know, it said that all matter is made up of these four primary elements, and that's internal and external. He said that one should be aware of both the internal and external. And it can be helpful in looking at the world around us, looking at the rocks, the trees, the snow, the flowers, well, not so many flowers right now, but just the world around us being made up of these four same elements that this body is made up of. In this way, we can see that we are not separate from nature, that we're a part of nature. And when this body breaks down, what it's composed of is these elements. I was once teaching a retreat on the West Coast with Gil Fronsdale, and he referred to this body as being made up of recycled parts, uh, recycled elements. And that is what this body is made up of. We become acquainted with these elements in practice. It's not that as we practice, we need to hold to the context of earth element, air element, water element, or fire element, because this would keep us caught on the conceptual level. Uh, But we can know these elements directly through knowing the qualities of these elements. So I'd like to speak just a little bit about each of these elements. The earth element is similar to what we call earth um, in the world. It serves as a support or a foundation for the coexisting of material phenomena. The function of the earth is to act as a foundation on which something else rests. To a meditator, it manifests as receiving or accepting. Experientially, we know the earth element through sensations of hardness, softness, or solidity. When we touch water and it feels soft, this is actually the earth element. As we're sitting here and we feel the hardness of the cushion or the chair. This is the earth element. It could be that we feel the wind blowing on our cheek and it's icy, cutting. This too is earth element. 
Water element is that which gives cohesiveness. Its characteristics are trickling, cohesion, or fluidity. Its function is to intensify the coexisting material states. It makes things more intense, and its manifestation is to hold together. We can see this in the way of if we put water, if we're making bread, and we put water into uh, the ingredients, it has a way of making a cohesive container. We it can experience the water element in feelings of wetness in the corner of our eye, or maybe there's moisture in our mouth. The fire element has the characteristics of being either hot or cold. The fire element's function is to mature things. Its manifestation is to continue to supply softness. We often experience the fire element when we digest our foods. There's a burning up. It causes things to break down. We experience the fire element in our lives as the body ages. We'll often, in practice, have very strong experiences of hot or cold. The air element, its characteristics are extension, expanding, or distending. The very fact that we can sit or walk is a result of air element. Its function is to cause movement, and its manifestation is conveyance to other places. These four elements arise together. They coexist together. But in our experience, we may find that one element, the characteristics of one element, are stronger. And this is how we can come to know the elements. These elements are continually uh, functioning within what we call the body. And we can see how reactive we can get to the play of these elements at times. You know, we have this tendency to want these elements to be perfectly balanced, to be in a place where they aren't creating unpleasant experience. And yet, when one of them is really intensely felt, we tend to react to it. We tend to want to change it. Um, you know, just noticing if you eat food and as a result there's a lot of wind, a lot of air in the body. It can be really unpleasant. And then we can go into whole stories about, I shouldn't have ate it, it was the food, rather than just being with it on the level of the air element. Sometimes in the practice, um, you know, there can be strong experiences of 
fire. You know, maybe there's a pain in the knee and there's a lot of heat with it. And again, we start relating, reacting to it, my pain, my knee, um, uh, wanting to change it rather than just feeling that element being present, predominant in the body at that time. In just a few minutes, we're going to do another short guided meditation where we will explore a little bit more these four elements. But I just wanted to close this part of the Dharma talk using the simile that the Buddha used in speaking of the material aggregate. Monks, suppose that a large glob of foam were floating down the Ganges River and the man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a glob of foam? In the same way, a monk sees, observes, and appropriately examines any form that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in form? So as a way of exploration of this body, sitting comfortably, feeling a sense of comfort in the body and letting the mind be easy, finding a balance between tranquility and alertness. We find tranquility when we focus on the receptive element, receiving experience. If we start to fade out, space out, we can bring in the alertness through investigation or interest in the changing flow of experience. In having roused the mind, I'd like to share just a short poem by Uttara, a nun who lived in the time of the Buddha, where she talked about how we come to practice and apply our attention. She was actually quoting another nun 
patachara. Having roused the mind, make it one-pointed and concentrated. Examine the formations as alien and not as self. Tonight, examining the formations of material form. How do we experience this body? What do we know for ourselves about this body? Laying aside the conceptual level of the body and looking into the direct experience. In doing so, acknowledging that we know of this body in combination with all of the five aggregates, but we're just highlighting the experience of physical form. We can't do it without contact, which creates pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience. We need perception to name our experience. We need consciousness to know the experience. And we need to have the intention to do so. But now, looking at this body, looking at the earth element, sensations that are of this element, noticing sensations where there is contact, buttocks on the cushion or chair, hardness or softness. Maybe the hands touching each other. Hardness, softness. A feeling of solidity. Maybe it's the clothes touching our skin. Soft. Experiencing the fire element. Noticing where the skin meets the air. There may be coolness or warmth. There's places of tension in the body. might be a lot of heat. The air element, as we move, as we breathe, There's movement 
vibration, expansion, collapsing. We might experience movement if there's a gurgling in the stomach or wind moving through the system. water element, experienced as a teardrop in the eye, moisture in the nose, saliva in the mouth. As we breathe in, we may be aware of the softness of the breath. This is earth element. Sometimes we're aware of the coolness of the breath. Fire element. We might be aware of movement vibrations the air element. All of the elements playing, weaving through experience, this is the aggregate of material form. The Buddha on these elements. What, friends, is the earth element? The earth element may be either internal or external. What is the internal? earth element. Whatever internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to, that is head hairs, body hairs, nail, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, contents of the stomach, feces, or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to. This is called the internal earth element. Now both the internal earth element and the external earth element are simply earth element. And that should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. When one sees it thus, as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the earth element and makes the mind dispassionate towards the earth element. 
what friends is the water element. The water element may be either internal or external. And what is the internal water element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is water, watery, and clung to, that is bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, urine, or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is water, watery, and clung to. This is called the internal water element. Now both the internal water element and the external water element are simply water element. And that should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. When one sees it thus as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the water element and makes the mind dispassionate towards the water element. What, friends, is the air element? The air element may be either internal or external. What is the internal air element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is air, airy, and clung, clung to. That is, upgoing winds, downgoing winds, winds in the belly, winds in the bowels, winds that course through the limbs, in-breath and out-breath, or whatever else internally belongs to oneself is air, airy, and clung to. This is called the internal air element. Now, both the internal air element and the external air element are simply air element. And that should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When one sees it thus, as it actually is, with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the air element and makes the mind dispassionate toward the air element. What, friends, is the fire element? The fire element may be either internal or external. What is the internal fire element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is fire, fiery, and clung to. That is, that by which one is warmed, ages, and is consumed. And that by which one is eaten, drunk, consumed, and tasted gets completely digested. Or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is fire, fiery, and clung to. This is called the internal fire element. Now both the internal fire element and the external fire element are simply fire element. And that should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. When one sees it thus, as it actually is, with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the fire element and makes the mind dispassionate toward the fire element. Looking directly into the experience of this body to know these four elements, to know them with wisdom. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself.
May all beings be freed from clinging to this aggregate of material form as self. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.